There was another man prophesying in the name of the Lord, Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words exactly like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all his officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent El-Nathan, son of Achbor, and men with him to Egypt. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and threw his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given over into the hands of the people to be put to death. That is the entire story of Uriah, son of Shemaiah, as told in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah. And I've got to admit that it's a pretty brutal story. Poor Uriah. And it's all the worse because he's only the second Uriah in the Bible to be so mistreated by a king. But here's what really struck me about the story. Apparently there was only one thing that set Uriah apart from another, more famous prophet, Jeremiah. Only one difference. And it wasn't that Jeremiah was a better speaker, or was smarter, or even that he was more diplomatic. Jeremiah only had one thing that Uriah didn't have, and that was a friend in court. It makes a difference who you know. It is kind of unfair. Why should Jeremiah get all the glory? Why should Jeremiah get a whole book published of his prophecies while Uriah is relegated to one short paragraph? It seems to be a narrative injustice. Who will tell Uriah's story? Who? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.11 Raiders of the Lost Prophet Uriah ran through the crowded marketplace of Elephantine. For about the thousandth time, he wondered why he had decided to flee here. True, there was much that was attractive about this small city built upon an island in the middle of the Nile River in Upper Egypt. 
it had a lovely, moderate climate. Even more important, there was a fairly large community of expatriate Judahites who lived here. They had even begun to set up their own center for worship and sacrifice that made so many things about life much easier. The absolute downside of Elephantine was, of course, that it was the very first place that anyone would look in order to find a Jew who was on the run. Uriah had hoped that the king wouldn't be so vengeful, that he wouldn't have bothered to waste precious resources on hiring an assassin to chase an enemy all the way to Egypt. He should not have been so naive. King Jehoiakim would never forget, and he would certainly never forgive. He heard the voice of El Nathan from the far side of the square. That way! He went that way! Try to cut him off while I go this way! Uriah ran blindly into an alleyway. Uriah had watched it all happen. In the days of King Josiah, his heart had been filled with hope as he watched the king enact his signature reforms. The king had decreed that there was only one God, Yahweh, and that all the people must worship him. What's more, all of the people must go and worship only in Jerusalem. All other sanctuaries, whether they were dedicated to Yahweh or to any other god, must be shut down. The new laws and regulations had not been well received, and Uriah understood why. All of those measures were devastating to many towns and villages who relied on steady traffic to their sanctuaries. Priests and Levites who had presided over the sanctuaries saw their livelihoods ruined. Many were relocated to Jerusalem, where they continued to play a role in the worship life of the people, but they would never again know the prestige or power they had exercised in their own sanctuaries. So all of it was difficult and it caused a great deal of disruption. But Uriah was in favor nonetheless. He and a handful of other prophets, including his friend Jeremiah, had spoken out in favor of the reforms, often at great risk to their life and limbs. And while you could never say that it was easy, overall, the reforms of Josiah had been very successful. Jerusalem had lived through an era of great prosperity, and the people in general had seen a great improvement in their lives. But Josiah had died, and it had all been so wasteful. 
the king had foolishly decided to challenge the king of Egypt as he passed through the land, and he had died. Josiah had been fighting against Egypt, but he had done it in an attempt to support the rising empire of Babylon. The young men of Judah had been wasted in such an enterprise. After that had happened, something snapped inside of Uriah. He just knew it was a word of Yahweh that Babylon was unstoppable, that resistance against its advance was useless, and that its rising tide would encompass the tiny kingdom of Judah, bringing it down. Uriah was not the only one to see it. His prophetic colleague was the first to dare to utter it openly. He stood right up in the middle of the temple courtyard, and he declared, Thus says Yahweh, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the official sanctuary prophets were shocked that Jeremiah would dare to say such a thing. The people surrounded him right there, and they probably would have torn him to pieces had the king not intervened. The new king, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, was still feeling out the limits of his powers in those days. He was still surrounded by many of the advisers who had been with his father, and he listened to them in those days. Chief among those advisers was Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who had been secretary to Josiah and still remained in the post for his son. He respected and perhaps even feared the prophets who had supported the work of his father. The king called out, and the chaos subsided. A sort of a trial was quickly organized in the nearby gate, and Uriah took it as a very encouraging sign when, despite the inflammatory nature of what Jeremiah had said, he was not arrested and was allowed to go. The word of Yahweh, apparently, was still something that should be respected, even when it was inconvenient. Uriah turned a corner and stopped suddenly. He found himself face to face with one of his pursuers. He quickly cast about for something that he could use to defend himself. A nearby stall had a display of various vessels made of sturdy pottery to be used for cooking. 
he grabbed one substantial pot with a long handle and held it up in front of him menacingly. His pursuer just laughed, however, and pulled out a long knife. Uriah quickly turned and ran, but the knife wielder was right behind him. He ducked into a nearby doorway, and his assailant came swiftly after him. All of a sudden there was a great crack, and the man tumbled out of the door onto his back. Uriah, still clutching the pan, exited. There were some large woven baskets nearby, totally out of breath. He climbed into the nearest one and pulled a lid over his head. Uriah had watched as the administration of King Jehoiakim steadily descended into ever more chaos and dysfunction. Again and again, the king seemed to make the mistake of underestimating the power and the threat of Babylon. He seemed to think that it was possible to resist them. He kept making dangerous alliances with the enemies of Babylon, which only exposed his own weakness. It was foolishness. It was madness. Uriah kept hoping that someone would challenge him on it. Ahikam, the secretary, was someone who had always been wise and cautious, especially in matters related to Babylon. He had seen firsthand the foolishness of trying to prevent the inevitable. Uriah kept waiting for Ahikam to speak up, but nothing ever happened. Finally, Uriah felt that he could not remain silent anymore. He knew what this feeling was. It was what the Guild of Prophets called the Word of Yahweh. It was a word of truth that once it had infected you would never let go of you. You had to speak it or perhaps Yahweh would drive you mad. Uriah stood up in the court of the temple of Yahweh, just as Jeremiah had done a few years before. The message that he shouted did not differ in any significant way from what Jeremiah had said. It inspired the same anger on the part of the priests and authorities. If Uriah had been expecting that it would also inspire the same tolerance and respect from the king and from advisors like Ahikam, he was sorely mistaken. And now as he huddled as quietly as he could inside a woven basket, Uriah seethed. He remembered how he had stood there in the midst of the courtyard of the temple, while all of the temple officials raised their voices and shouted curses at him. He waited for the king to come and to redeem him from his enemies, but from the palace there came nothing. Finally, he was approached by a cousin of his, 
a small man, who slipped through the crowd almost unnoticed, and sidled up beside Uriah to whisper in his ear. They are saying that King Jehoiakim is furious, that he's calling for someone to bring him your head. You'd better run, Uriah. Better run right now. And so Uriah had run. He had dropped everything, had not even stopped to pick up a cloak at home. He had run and not looked back until he had landed here in Elephantine. And now, as he hid and waited, he had nothing to do but consider the cost of daring to speak aloud a word of Yahweh to a king who didn't want to hear it. But, try as he might, he could not think of what he would have done differently. He had not had any options. When you are given the word of Yahweh, when you know the vital truth that needs to be spoken to the moment, you dare not remain silent. Had he done so, the consequences for him would have only been worse. Things had grown somewhat quieter on the street where he had hidden. Perhaps the coast was clear. Perhaps Uriah would manage to escape and live to run and hide another day. But Uriah suddenly decided that he didn't really care that much one way or another. He had already taken his stand. Did it really matter how long he waited to accept the consequence that laid before him? Calmly and deliberately, he pushed the lid off the top of the basket and stood. El Nathan was standing right there with a silly grin plastered on his face. El Nathan did not strike Uriah down on the streets of Elephantine. Instead, the prophet was placed in chains and was made to walk all the way down the River Nile, across the delta, and through the desert upon the king's highway. El Nathan only gave him enough water and meager rations to keep him alive and able to move. Every night, when the mule train stopped moving, his captors would make sport of Uriah until they grew bored of it and left him on the edge of the encampment, far from any watchfire. He shivered in the cold and clasped a thin cloak around him. But not once in all those long days did Uriah find it in himself to regret what he had done, or to repent of it. Whenever he could catch the gaze of El Nathan, he would stare at the man, until it was El Nathan who dropped his eyes in embarrassment. They made him walk all the way to Jerusalem, and when he arrived, Uriah, emaciated, dehydrated, 
and wearing nothing more than rags, was made to stand upon his thin and wavering feet before the king. The king did not speak to him. He turned to his military advisers and asked for a sword. Among the gathered nobles and officials stood Ahikam. Uriah only had eyes for him. He said nothing, looking sadly at the secretary, to who, to his credit, did not look away. Uriah thought that he detected a small shrug of Ahikam's shoulders just before the king raised the sword that had been passed to him. I'm sure that King Jehoiakim thought that he looked very manly and powerful as he wielded the sword that day, as he began to slash at the prophet who had been lost and now was found. But I suspect that there were more than a few in the court that day who thought that the king looked weak and who saw the strength that was in Uriah. To be a prophet in ancient Israel was to speak the word of Yahweh. This is generally portrayed in the prophetic books in terms of the Lord speaking to the prophet and telling him or her what to say, and then the prophet going and announcing those words publicly. Now, there may well have been some ancient prophets who literally heard supernatural voices. Such people have existed throughout history and still exist today, though they are, of course, generally diagnosed differently in modern times. But I do not think that most prophets actually heard voices. The expression, the Lord spoke to me, was simply their way of expressing the experience of discerning what it was that God wanted to say to his people as they reflected on the events that were taking place in the world around them. Sometimes they saw things like a, a basket of overripe fruit or a potter working at a wheel, and that sight turned their thoughts in certain directions. They discerned in those thoughts something that God wanted them to say to the people, and so they concluded that God must have intentionally shown them the potter or the fruit. I believe, in other words, that anyone who pays attention to current events, who is thoughtful and perceptive, can potentially hear what I would call the word of the Lord and become a prophet. But here is the warning that comes with that. The story of Uriah makes it quite clear that the risks of daring to speak the word of the Lord are very real. It also makes it clear that if you do, well, it might be a good idea to have at least one friend in high places.
That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so that you can get the next one in a couple of weeks. A great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Noble Race. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.